Welcome to the Dark Zone, an adventure racing podcast. Okay, you people sit tight, hold the fort, and keep the home fires burning. And if we're not back by dawn, call the president. You're going the wrong way! What? You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Thank you. Thanks a lot. Welcome to the Dark Zone. This is your host, Brian Gatens. Today we are joined by Kate Geisen. Kate is an adventure racer. And today she walks us through her trip on the Great Divide mountain bike route. Um, a large part of adventure racing is, is that we race our races and then we go off into the world and do these great adventures. And Kate walks us through her entire experience, the challenges, the high points, the low points, the gear, how she put logistics together. Kate does a great job on this episode and we're glad that you're here. Sit back and relax and enjoy this episode of The Dark Zone, an adventure racing podcast. A large part of the work that we do is that we interview adventure racers about their adventure races, right? It's obvious in our name. But there's a subset of racer, our adventure racers, who adventure, who go out and they do these amazing, awesome, fun events. And we bring them on the show and we, we ask them all about it. And today's guest is, is Kate Geisen. Um, Kate Geisen recently completed through bike, if you will, of the Great Divide mountain bike route. She'll talk a lot more about it as we go through here. Kate, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate your time to jump into the conversation. Give us the, the 30,000 foot overview. What was your adventure? What'd you put together? Tell us all about it. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I say all the time that if you can't be adventuring, the next best thing is talking about adventure. So I'm so excited to be here. Uh, a friend and I um, had planned for about nine years and finally got to execute riding, like you said, on the Great Divide mountain bike route. We began in Antelope Wells, New Mexico on June 3rd, and we finished in Banff, um, wait, Banff, Alberta on July 15th. So it was definitely a tour, not a race. Um, and that was a decision made um, back in 2019 when I rode the Arkansas High Country route. And I did race that to, to the best of my ability. And about midway through that, I texted my friend who was we were planning on doing this um, great divide route. And I said, I don't want to race the divide. Um, I want to, I want to tour it. It just, um, there's so much to see and I didn't want to just ride by it. And I didn't want to cry every day. And I didn't want to just survive every day. I really wanted to be able to savor this adventure. And so that's what we did. It took us 43 days, 41 days of riding. And it, really was one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life. And in, in the world of, of long distance bike packing and bike racing, the, the, the tour and the, the tour divide is the, the famous movie about it. And there's been a lot of conversation about it. You make a good point that it's, it's, it's best known for a northbound to southbound race that is held every year, starts in Alberta, finishes down in New Mexico. Um, what's the total mileage of the, of the route? So, so the race route, the total mileage is about 2,700 miles. That can vary from year to year. Um, like this year, there were some detours because of snowpack. There were some detours because of forest fires in New Mexico. But 2,700 miles is approximately the route. And, and for a little bit of context, um, compared to our 43 days, 
the winner of the Tour Divide race did it in about 14 and a half days. So <laughs> it, it's astonishing. And I knew that, you know, I knew I followed this race for probably nine years and I knew how amazing the races are. And now I know it like in my bones, it's just, it's otherworldly. I can't imagine going so fast on such hard terrain for in, in such a short time. And, and what I'll do is when I put the show notes together, I'll put some links to some of the, some of the more popular um, uh, videos and movies about it. Lael Wilcox is a very popular writer and, and she's done a lot of work on it. And it's a, there's fascinating stuff. Um, you know, nobody um, gets off their couch and decides to ride the, the, the great divide route, right? There's clearly there's training that goes on. You talked about the Arkansas high country route. Talk us a bit through, you, you've obviously chewed off this really big monster accomplishment and congratulations to you on that. But you've clearly grown into it over time as an adventure and an adventure racer. Can you walk our audience through your own personal history? What's your origin story like? Okay, for sure. So um, I started biking just like on a hybrid bike back in 2009. And um, I really feel like a hybrid bike is the, is the gateway drug of bicycling, you know, because it just, it just grew to mountain biking and it grew to road biking and, and all the biking. But I first encountered the Tour Divide race um, while doing a long trainer ride. My adventure racing team did this thing that we called the Super Century, which was a metric trainer century on Super Bowl day. And then you could eat whatever you wanted to. And so while I was riding my trainer forever, I was watching Netflix and this documentary Ride the Divide, which almost anyone who's ever ridden Tour Divide or the Divide route has seen. And I, it just called to me. I was like, I have got to do this route. And that was in 2013. So in 2013, I put out a blog post and I was like, all right, mark my words. In eight years, I'm going to be doing this race. Well, eight years was kind of COVID and the Canadian border was closed. And I had had some problems um, with bulging discs in my back and didn't have a whole lot of confidence in my body last year anyway. So we put it off for a year. Um, but in the meantime, it really took me and eight years, I felt like for one, my kids were younger then. And this year, um, and, and last year, my son was my youngest was 17. And I felt like that was an okay time to be away from my family for what I assumed would be about a month. Um, and also it would give me time to get stronger and to get more experience and to learn how to work on a bike. But it actually took me until 2017 before my first bikepacking trip. And so we set out on this and it was just an overnight we set out on this trip and part of me is like, Ooh, I hope I like this because I've been talking about this race now for four years, but I loved it. <laughs> you, you sort of, you, well, so don't we all kind of do that, right? Like, yes. like it, a common strategy that people use is that we will things into existence by heightening the public pressure on us. I'm going to do this, do this, do this. Guess what? If you say it enough out loud, you got to go and do it. Absolutely. And I actually heard something um, today. I was listening to a podcast uh, about someone else who had, who had taken the same, he had actually done the tour divide route, but he, he referenced something about, you know, some people love the idea of long distance bikepacking and some people actually love long distance bikepacking. So I came into it loving the idea, but I really found that, yes, I, I really love traveling by bike and it has made training a little bit more complicated because now, if I'm not like going somewhere on my bike, it seems a little bit less fun. Um, and I'm really into the fun part. I mean, even when I'm in venture racing, my team, 
like our team motto is fun is better than fast. And, you know, we say we're adventure, capital A adventure racers rather than adventure capital R racers. You know, we're really more about the fun and people say, well, you'd probably go faster if you took less pictures. And that's probably true, but that's, that's not a real motivation. Um, but anyway, so in 2000, early 2019, I saw something about the Arkansas High Country Race, and that is the thousand mile loop around Arkansas. And um, it actually has about 85,000 feet of climbing, very um, lots of punchy climbs. And um, it's the same type of thing as Tour Divide. I heard about it and I was like, oh, I have got to do that. And so I did. Um, it took me 12 days. We had 19 starters and 10 finishers and I was the 10th finisher. So I, I proudly hold the SKT, the slowest known time on the route. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the club. Yes. And it was, it was amazing. It was like empowering and exciting and so, so hard and really just confirmed what good people there are in the world. But also it confirmed for me that my heart is not in um, bike pack racing. It's really more in, in touring and having the experiences and meeting the people and seeing the things and not trying to be fast. And my fast wasn't, you know, it was 12 days um, over, so, over so a thousand miles. So it sounds like the thought of, to your point earlier, the thought of bike pack racing was what got you into bike packing. But you discovered as you went through that race and where you where you ended up there and you realized what you had to do, that in reality, it was really about bike pack touring. It was about, about being that connected to the land, to the ground and enjoying yourself along the way. It sounds like that was a personal transformation for you. Absolutely. For me, it, it has never particularly been about being fast. It really has been about the experience and the people. And so you, and so as you kind of transition through this and you had set this big goal, you saying you're going to race the tour divide and yet you transitioned into riding the tour divide. You have mentioned your adventure racing career, you know, and we do want to recognize our core audience. Um, talk before we come back into the bike packing, talk to us about your adventure racing. How did you get your start there? What team are you on? What are some of the races you've done? Okay, Absolutely. Um, much like my um, love for the Tour Divide and for the Arkansas High Country Race, um, I kind of came to it out of nowhere and was enthralled. Um, back in 2010, I think a friend of mine, just and, and not even a close friend, someone who I vaguely knew through the internet, had posted something about my friend is doing this adventure or, or my team is doing this adventure race and um, it's a 36 hour adventure race. And I don't know, don't expect it to go very fast or very far, but here's the online link. And that was the Berryman adventure race when it was the 36 hour. And I, so many people, I guess, came to adventure racing through eco challenge. I had never seen eco challenge. That wasn't, that wasn't a part of my history. So my first introduction to adventure racing was the checkpoint tracker online tracking for the Berryman 36 hour. And I watched, you know, I'd logged on and I kind of checked back for about an hour and I texted my brother and I was like, we have to do this because I have no navigational skills and he was in the army. So he could at least do that. So then um, the next year, my brother and I did the Berryman 12 hour. Uh, my longest race is, has been a 30 hour. I did the stubborn mule race twice in um, up in Wisconsin. And then I also did the no sleep 30 hour in southern illinois and other than that you know it's been and those, those um, are great races by the way oh my those, gosh those amazing. are great races. yeah well organized we, we've had we've had the race directors on the show and for those of you out there in that part of the country track down those races those are very very good races and so 
So it sounds like you're, you, you, you jumped into the deep end of the pool that your first adventure race was a, was a big, like, was it, was it 30 or 36 hours? Am I hearing that right? No, um, mine, mine was only the 12 hour version, but I can remember Jason Elsenrat, who was the race director at the time. And he had, he had people raise their, okay, like who's here for their first race. And we raised our hands and he's like, oh, why? You know why you'd want to pick a race called the ass kicker for your first adventure race. I don't know. <laughs> and it, you know, it was like, there's so much, you don't know what you don't know until you get out there. And he's like, all right, there's a bunch of roads that aren't mapped. And we're like, what's that even mean? And then we set off on an unmapped road and we learned very quickly what that means, what, what that meant. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, it wasn't the kind of deep end of going into a 36 hour race for our first um, attempt, but it was a very, very humbling experience. Um, so I raced one other time with my brother. Um, and then primarily I've raced with a team called Team Beardus Adventure Racing. And most of them are out of Jefferson City, Missouri. Um, there's now a few of us a little bit further east in the St. Louis area. Um, and th- but that's been my my primary race experience. And so, and so clearly there's a, a personality profile that this sort of fits. Like you heard about this checkpoint tracker, you signed up for it. I always like to point out this, this part of the podcast, if, if non-adventure racers are listening, they're usually blown away by the idea that a 12 hour race is like, well, it's, it's only 12 hours. It's on the shorter <laughs> yeah. side, right? Where in reality is like 36 hours is a longer race. And then like five days is the longest race. So it's, it's an interesting comment on the perspective that adventure racing offers. Um, Absolutely. But so it sounds like your origin story. It sounds like you, you, you clearly, you hear about these things that you sound like you're going to enjoy. You do a little bit of research on them. You dive right into them. And it's, so that applies to adventure racing. And, um, you know, adventure racing, while there's not a pure correlation for adventure racing to, to bike pack touring and racing, there is some crossover of skill set. Um, you know, the ability to suffer, figure things out, eating and sleeping. How did your adventure racing ch- career inform your bikepacking? Oh, my gosh. We said all the time, um, and I said it to myself in the high country race and then on Tour Divide so much like so many experiences from the forest roads like these crappy forest roads where they call it a road and then you get there and it's like three puddles and a bunch of rocks um and yeah we said you know instead of looking for flags we're looking for restaurants we're looking for places to sleep we're looking for you know places to hide out when a storm comes uh it very much it very much translates um and has really bikepacking has kind of become for the largest part my adventure race Gotcha. And so, it, and it's the same exact, there's a, there's a transfer there. And and that's the common thing we see a lot in adventure racing is that people who don't really have a skill set in the outdoors and managing themselves and their gear and their sleep and the food, they do adventure races and they, and they, and they develop that ability to do those things and they continue adventure race or they don't, but then they transfer it into other experiences. And it sounds like that's what you did. You stepped from the adventure racing into the, the bike touring. Um, drilling a bit more into the, your, your tour divide experience. And there's logistically a lot of questions to have like 43 days before we get into the ride itself. And I'm sure there was a variety of experience there, weather and and food and navigation, all that. What was your training? Like, did you have a specific, did you work with a coach? Did you just ride lots? Like what was, what did you do to, to be successful when it came to that? Okay. 
So my bar for success was really completion, first of all. And I, I really had big plans for the amount of training that I would do. Um, I'm a first grade teacher and I'm a mom whose son was a senior last year in high school, which meant that my time was very much spent working and it was spent going to um, different sporting events and senior nights. Um, and so my main rides were about once a week and our longest ride, we did one century ride and everything else was between 70 and 80 miles um, on a Saturday or on a Sunday. We did one three or four day bike packing, bike packing trip back in April. And then May was just like constantly filled with graduation things and sporting events. And so my friend Chuck and I went into it really saying, well, we hope that by the end of the ride, we're trained for the ride, you know, and, and both of us have, have adventure raced and endurance raced for a long time. So like, I know that my body is capable of going and going and going. My body will generally do what I ask of it. Now it may not be fast, but it'll happen. And, and so I came into it with a lot of confidence that I could do this. Like I felt very confident that we would be able to do the route. Um, but the, but the pace definitely adjusted because of, it was not, I mean, it wasn't the kind of training that somebody who's going into it to race would do for sure. Gotcha. But you, but to your credit, and and this is a good message for our listeners is that you, you looked at your, your, your demands of your life outside of sport, right? The fact that you're a first grade teacher, by the way, thank you for being a teacher, first grade teachers, <laughs> we, we heroes. Um, I work in education too, so I can say that out loud and I believe it. And thank you for your service there. Um, most important profession there is hands down take that emergency room physicians, teachers are where it's at. Um, and so clearly what you did was you did what a lot of us do is that you said to yourself, I have these demands in my life that are joyful and things that I get to do, not that I have to do. Like I get to be a teacher, I get to be a mom and all of those things. And then you said to yourself, well, I have this part of my life and then I have this part of my life. In order for this one to happen, I need to do what I can with what I have, recognizing the fact that you weren't gonna put down a 14 day Tour de Vitrip, nor did you want to along the way. Absolutely. So you, so you went into it with a with a with a with a realistic understanding of what you'd have to do. For sure, and I mean, you know, you can be, you can suffer, like you can suffer sooner, or you can suffer later. And our option was just that we chose to suffer later, you know, or or we suffered later because we didn't suffer sooner. But it was absolutely worth it. You know, I would just like having a kid, like there's probably no best time to go race the tour divide. There's always going to be things that get in your way. So, you know, at some point you make a decision that this is my goal and this is what I want to do. And, and you don't make excuses. You just go for it and you, you deal with the consequences that come. Right. And, and the idea of, of ready kind of falls to the side. Like, like right. it wasn't about being ready. It was about getting started. And, and, we see it time and time again is that too many people sit around until they think they're ready. Well, in reality, you're never ready. Absolutely. Yeah. You might have the chance to go and do it. And so you, you had, you had the demands of your, of your, of your personal life. And then you just said, you, you, you know, circled the date in the calendar, June 3rd. I'm, I'm, we're shoving off, right? We're shoving off from, 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 from Antelope Wells, right? Antelope, I always want to say Antelope Falls. It's Antelope Wells, <laughs> right? And, right. And, Antelope Wells. And then you, you decide to, you take your base of training that you have, you take your base of adventure racing experience, you had done the other race, you had done some bike packing, and you just started, you set off going north. Did you feel when you started off, besides the normal pre-race, pre-ride jitters that you had going into it, 
was there anything particularly poking at you with the exception of just the general nervousness you're going to have? Like, did anything really chew at you at the start of the ride? Or was it just, listen, we're here. We got a bike full of food. We got a, we got gear. We got each other. And we have a map that goes North and off you went. Like, what was it like at the beginning? Well, I would say that my biggest concern at the beginning was that on uh, let's see, May 28th, 29th, I, w- I was diagnosed with COVID. And okay. so we left, we left Illinois on the very day that I got out of my five day quarantine. Okay. So I had a lot of, I had a lot of questions as far as, you know, what kind of lingering effects I was going to have, but I mm-hmm. also had a window to, to complete this ride in, um, because I had to be back on July 25th to take a class for school. Um, so, so I had a lot of question marks kind of about how COVID would affect me. And, um, other than that, you know, I really, I have a hundred percent confidence in my writing partner. Chuck and I have raced together for years. Uh, we've adventured together. Um, I would trust my life to him and, you know, like, I have full confidence in him that when things go to hell, like that he'll be right there with me figuring out the answer. Um, So I really didn't have any big concerns. And, you know, we weren't thinking about 2,700 miles in front of us. We were thinking about where are we stopping tonight? You know, that's such a big number when you think you cannot start. I cannot start thinking about 2,700 miles. And so the entire trip, we really just thought, okay, where are we staying tonight? Where's the next place we get food? And it was just that like, hopping from spot to spot. And it wasn't truly until spoiler alert, eight miles outside of Canada that we were like, Oh my God, (laughs) this is going to happen. Yeah. (laughs) We just rode our bikes across the entire country. You know, we, we just never thought ahead. Now I will say um, that the first two days in New Mexico put some real big questions in our heads. Why was that? Was it the heat? Was it the elevation? Was it just everything? I think a little bit, I think a little bit of it was elevation and maybe some of it was COVID, but um, like Chuck really got hit hard in the first 40 miles. I mean, we left and my nephew and his friend dropped us off in Antelope Wells and we had come from two hours away. So by the time that we got our bikes all loaded and everything ready, it was about nine in the morning in New Mexico. And so it was hot and it was dry and, you know, we live in the Midwest and so we're used to hot weather and we're used to humidity, but we're used to shade and we're used to water being present. And, you know, there's just none, there was nothing for 45 miles. And so Chuck kind of struggled that first 45 miles. And then we, we got to Hachita, which is the first town and town is in quotation marks. Cause it's like four houses in a community center and a little store. And we refilled some water and he, <laughs> the, the community center there lets people camp there or, or stay there. And they have a little um, porch and they had a chair out in the front and he sat down on that chair. And I think he was asleep before, like he was all the way sitting. And so I, we just sat there until he woke up and then we started and we had like another 28 miles to the next door, which is nothing. It was like two, two o'clock. Like it's nothing. And within 10 miles, I just like had this slow speed collapse where I was going really slow. And Chuck has a picture at some point, there's no shade, you know, and people, you know, just taking. Right. We posted on our on our Facebook pages about our trip, you know, people like, listen to your body, take breaks. <laughs> you can't take a break. Like there's nowhere to yeah, stop. There's no stopping because because you're just gonna sit there in the sun and bake. So right. you have and to so, keep moving. So there's one picture and there's a yucca tree and there's like 
like a, a one by three foot spot of shade. And Chuck has this picture of me curled up in the shade of this deca tree for a few minutes. But, you know, it was really like going from from little bit of shade to little bit of shade. And we ended up having to stop in the shade of a railroad bridge. And we literally just waited there until the sun went down before gotcha. we could go again. And so we got to the store long after it had closed and we camped on the side of it, which was very not restful because there was a railroad track there and there was an interstate there and there were 18 wheelers that were pulling in all night to park. And so I slept about an hour and we thought, okay, we're going to get up at 6.30 in the morning and we're going to start again. And the next day, the first hour and a half or so were good, but the sun came up and, and just the same thing happened. And I, I struggled so hard and, um, you know, like we've ridden enough together, Chuck and I, that we're pretty equivalent. You know, if, if we're not on technical terrain where he's vastly better, you know, I know that I'm as strong as he is. And so I just couldn't do anything. And so I'd stop my bike at the bottom of a hill and I'd start and hill is, is like such a, <laughs> it was barely a hill. It wasn't flat and it wasn't downhill. So I considered it a hill and I'd start walking my bike up and he left his bike at the top and he'd come down and push my bike up, you know, and it just, those, those two days were really, really tough. And neither one of us said it out loud, but both of us, you know, we've later talked about it. We're like, I don't know if I can do this. And it wasn't the distance and it wasn't the climbing. It was just that heat and, and that dryness and that lack of shade and that lack of water. Um, and I think in retrospect, despite the fact that I was drinking so much, I was so dehydrated. And so we finally got to Silver City and I told him that day, I was like, I can't, I can't ride tomorrow. And, and that was a really hard thing to say, you know, we're two mm -hmm. days into this trip we've been talking about for nine years. Mm -hmm. and, and, the, and the whole world and the world is kind of watching, right? You're, you know, you're, you've been posting about it, talking about it, and you don't want to be the schnook that after two days packs up and goes home. Absolutely. But I also knew that if I didn't take that next day off, we were going to be packing up and going back home because we knew we had to get up earlier and, you know, bikepacking is a lot of work. I know that you bikepack also, mm -hmm. like you don't get to the end of your day and just kick back. You get to the end of your day and you've got to get water for the next day. And you've yep. got to cook your food. And you've got to set up your tent and, you know, you have to prep everything for the next day. And so I, I just knew that by the time that we got to Silver City and did all those things, you know, I was only going to have a couple hours of sleep and I just, I had to have more. And so, um, you know, and because we have that relationship where we've raced together for so long, you know, he understood that I wasn't just saying that, that it was, that was the case. And that was the reality. And we took a zero day. And from there on, it was a dramatically different ride. And there was probably, you also probably had your body, but yes, the heat, the, 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 the meteorological is there, but also I'm assuming that when you layer in the fact that you're post COVID, the fact that you, I'm going to put words in your mouth, but you kind of rushed to get there, right? You kind of had this, you know, the hardest part of is getting to the race, right? Getting right. to the ride is the hardest part. And so you probably showed up and at the end of the school year, right? And then being a teacher is emotionally draining. My guess is in retrospect, you probably showed up to the start line a little drained in many facets, physically, emotionally. And then starting it was such a big thing to think about. And of course, then you lay the heat on top of that. All those factors kind of come together. So what's interesting is, is that after those first two days, which were somewhat challenging, your decision to take a zero day, and you only took two zero days right. the entire time, that was your first zero day. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Was there, now when you went into day four, 
which was riding day three, did you find a, did your body have a catch? Did your body have a chance to sort of recover from the first two days? You had a zero day and then you were, you had, you had rejuvenated and you were refreshed going into day four, which was riding day three. You found that? Yes. And, and I'll tell you what, I was, I was really afraid to start day four because it was a pretty climby day. You know, we live, um, I live in Illinois, he lives in Missouri, you know, and it, there's not a lot of elevation here. Um, and so even coming into New Mexico, I think it was four or 5,000 feet of elevation, maybe even six at some point, you know, even that was dramatically different than our baseline in the Midwest. And then we knew that we'd be doing a lot of climbing over the first 25 miles. And I was, I was scared because I was like, oh my gosh, you know, we just took a day off on day three. And that's awesome if it works, but if it doesn't work and I can't do this writing, you know, what does that say? Uh, But you know what we, the biggest thing um, we rehydrated and I can't say enough for um, there's like a Gatorade rehydrate, which is kind of like Pedialyte. I can't say enough for that. I think it's kind of like a miracle fluid. Um, And we rested and we ate a lot of food on that day off. And we got up and we started riding. We we started getting up at three 30 in the morning and riding by four. And that, that was the key. You know, we really tried to be done by, by noon, but my body was completely different from that point on, you know, it was hard. Every day was hard. There were very few days that I ended the day and I was like, huh, I could ride some more, you know, um, and there most of the days, if you'd put a gun to my head, I would have ridden more, but so, I'll tell you what, that second day, if you put a gun to my head, I would have said, you're going to have to shoot me. Cause I can't yeah, do it. It was done in your body. And, and the, the, the good news is, is that you had enough capacity and, and mental memory and experience to realize that you needed that day off. Cause right. we both know what happened. If you forced yourself into day three, you would have fallen apart and it would have been just there's no way to get back from that. Um, right. when, when you look at your data, what was your what was your longest day and what was your shortest day? Our longest day was 96 miles, and that was in the Great Basin in Wyoming. And our shortest day was 38 day, 38 miles, and that was in Montana. We actually had three days right around 40 miles. And what we had found coming into Montana, so we had a zero day on day three. We had a zero day, I believe, on day 21. Um, and so then coming into Montana, we were both feeling like we really needed a break. Um, and we had planned to take a zero day in Butte, Montana, and we came into Butte and it was rainy and it was kind of gross. And the part of Butte that we came into wasn't very nice. Um, and the storms, I don't know, it just, it irritated me. (laughs) Like I I wasn't really a fan of Butte. And so we kind of decided not to stay there. And then there were three places that we wanted to stay moving forward from Butte. And they were all about 40 miles apart. And so what we ended up deciding was instead of taking that zero day in Butte, um, that instead we would continue to ride each day, but we would do three days of about 40 miles. And we figured that would be like kind of half zero days, um, sure. you know, and I, I'll say that the first two of those days, cause they were, there were a lot of climbing. There were some of our biggest climbing days, especially when you talk about per mileage, but by the third, um, by the third, I was like, okay, yeah, I've had enough rest, but the first two, I wasn't so sure about it. It sounds like you're, you're, you're not on like a tour de France rider because the tour de France, you know, it takes place over multiple weeks. It sounds like you clearly got stronger during the ride. I think so. And I, I mean, we just, like we had so much climbing that's nothing like anything that we do here, you know, like a long climb in the Midwest is maybe five minutes if that, you know, and I, 
I could probably count on one hand the number of hills that I ride on a regular basis that you can't see the top of. You know, so that's a very different thing from riding to, you know, almost 12,000 feet in Colorado. Right. Well, you're just you're turning the pedals over for 25, 30, 35 minutes, an hour, two hours. Right. You're just right. You're just you're you're you're, you're pointed uphill for so long that it begins to feel flat. Right. right? You, you forget you're going uphill. Right. Um, All you do is like spin your spin your tires right. and you have to embrace the slowness because right. that's all there is. So let's talk a bit about the, the, for those folks who are home and this is, you know, you know, for a fact that someone's going to listen to this and this is going to sort of do to them what the other thing did to you. Let's talk a bit about the, 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 the nitty gritty, the logistics of it. Um, how did you find the navigation? What did you use for that? Did you go with a GPS, paper maps? What'd you have at your disposal? Okay. We, um, we both used a Garmin e-track with the route loaded for ride with GPS, um, we both had the Adventure Cycling Association's app with the maps loaded with points of interest. Um, and then I had paper maps actually as well. And from Abiquiu, New Mexico, about a week in, I sent them home. We hadn't got them out and it wasn't really worth, um, it wasn't really worth the space and the, yeah, it's not much weight, but everything is weight at that point. Right. So we, we navigated primarily by, um, by E-Trex, um, a little, a lot. We resource or we reference the um, ACA maps a lot. And then Google Maps also, I would download whatever state we were in. I would download a section of that to Google Maps offline. And so we would, we would reference that a lot because um, like I told you before we started, you know, we definitely made some, made some audibles on the route where we didn't feel tied to staying exactly to the route. Which is good news because you had committed to it being a ride. And as a result right. of that, you were you weren't beholden to the race course perfectly. And as we had said also earlier, with with the heat and with the weather and with the with the fire danger, a lot of people are doing the ride now. They're modifying the ride along the way. That's just the reality of the world we live in. Right. Um, and so the so sending home the paper maps is an interesting decision because some people would say you only relied on your electronics, but it sounds like you had three or four different systems working during the course of the ride. That's a lot of redundancy all of them would have to fail simultaneously in order for you to fall apart. So therefore the paper maps could go away. Right. And even if they all failed simultaneously, uh, we both felt confident in our ability to get to a town where we would have some kind of resource um, to find our, either to charge our devices or, you know, to buy a new device, you know, whatever needed to happen. You know, we, we've said more than once, you know, we're adults with credit cards and so we yeah. can solve most problems. Exactly. That goes a long way. So yes. that was, so that was your navigation. Um, what was the terrain like? Were you on gravel road? Was it single track? Was it a variety? If you did like a percentage wise road, gravel, single track, how, how would you roughly break that down? Um, for us, there was almost no single track, only about the last 30 miles was single track. Other than that, I would say probably what we rode was about 50-50 pavement and gravel. And that gravel was such a range of gravel. I mean, anybody who rides a gravel route knows that, you know, you can have virtual pavement, pavement to almost baby heads along the right, way. Right. So, Chunky, um, sandy stuff. Absolutely. And we had we had all of that. Aside from your decision to walk the bike up some of the hills, which, by the way, I mean, I just came in our venture race in Scotland. My teammates were riding up hills and I was walking past them with my bike. I mean, let's <laughs> just get off your bike, put your foot down and walk your bike up the hill. How much true hike a bike was there? How much unrideable did you come across? Um, I would say that if you're strong enough, we on the route that we took, 
encountered very little that was truly unrideable. Now, that's not to say that we were able to ride all of that. There was a lot of climbing. Um, there were a lot of steeper hills. And, you know, like Colorado was was very climby and up Indiana Pass, which is the highest point at 11,990 feet. We did our share of walking that day. Um, but I we actually found that Montana was harder because it was a lot steeper. Um, but I, I would say for a stronger rider, there was probably not a ton that had to be hike a bike. Now, we are also very lucky because um, the roads that we rode in New Mexico, there was a lot of pavement because of forest fire detours. And it was very dry when we were through there. Now, the racers, when they came through, the monsoons came early. And so a lot of those roads that we were able to ride, uh, either we were on pavement or the gravel was dry and dusty. You know, they had to deal with mud. We did right. not have that. And I think that there are sections of the route further north that if you stay true to the route, there's more hike a bike there. Gotcha. And there's also the, one of the videos, I forget which one it was, shows how the, all the, all the racers got detoured. Well, no, sorry, got stopped because of the peanut butter mud. They just couldn't yeah. go any further. They tried and it snowed up there and, and all that. And so it sounds like you had a lot of things in your favor. What about your bike itself? What, 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 what was it? A, was it a pure gravel bike? Was it a, like, what your tire size? What did you ride there? I ride a salsa, a Thai salsa Fargo. Um, and I run 2.1 tires, 2.2 tires. And um, Chuck rides a salsa cutthroat and he also was riding 2.2s. Uh, so they're both drop bar mountain bikes. Neither one of us has any suspension other than what our tires give. Um, he was running Victoria Mezcals, which were a little bit, um, a little bit burlier. I run Terravale Sparwoods, which roll really well. Uh, I think that he found his to be much better in this, in, um, I wouldn't say it's sand. There were sections in New Mexico where the roads are dirt roads. And so there was this thick layer of dust on the top, like dirt dust on top that kind of rode like sand. And I really struggled in those sections and his tires seemed to do better. But then, you know, I, I'm never sure how much is the pilot and how much is the tires. So. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, so, I, yeah. Tend, I tend to call a pilot error. The bike's usually stronger <laughs> than I am. Yes. But um, yeah, so we both had very similar setups. His bike's carbon, mine's tie, so mine was a little bit heavier, um, but otherwise very much the same. And I, I thought it was great for what we rode. How, how did it hold together mechanically? Did you have flats? Did you break a chain, anything there? Now, now that it's over, you could talk about it. Don't talk yeah. about it when you're riding. <laughs> Neither one of us had a flat. So our route that we rode was 2,400 miles. We had zero flats in 2,400 miles. Um, the only mechanicals that I had, I picked up a piece of bailing wire in my derailleur at one point that we had to cut out. And by we, I mean Chuck, cause he takes care of all that. And oh, I feel like, oh, one of my bolts on my fork broke and my fork rack like flipped over. So we had to, we had to kind of fix that. Yeah. So that was all I had for mechanicals in 2,400 miles. Chuck had, um, in New Mexico and Grants, New Mexico, one of his rear derailleur pulleys just kind of exploded. So he had to ride single speed for about a hundred miles. And because we weren't racing, this is really the, the joy of touring instead of racing, you know, tour divide is solo self-supported and we were touring and anybody who wanted could help us. And we actually had a friend from the St. Louis area who was working in New Mexico. So he brought Chuck um, a new pulley wheel and he brought him a new chain so that he could fix his chain. Um, he had to have one of his brakes bled in 
Steamboat Springs, and he had to have his um, tubeless setup retaped on one of his wheels. But overall, I mean, we yeah, really. Yeah, I mean, it was 5,000 combined miles between two bikes it, and bicycles are amazing. Like the yes. amount of the amount of abuse we put bicycles through and they they hold together and they stay together and with minimal care, you know, solid care, take care of them. They really are amazing machines and and, and credit the Salsa for, for having such strong machines out there. And they really are one of the preeminent bike bike packing brands out there. Um, Absolutely. And for a reason, um, you know, and Chuck mm-hmm. even said, he's like, I can't believe that our bikes held together through some of the stuff we rode them down. Like it was just such chunky downhills and they, they were wonderful. I mean, I can't say enough for either one of our bikes. Did you pass the point in the ride where you were, you were, you were done eating like just enough with the food? <laughs> oh my gosh. Like two days in. And yeah, I like, we do long rides all the time. I know what I can eat. I know what I like to eat. I've really trained my bike, my body to operate on garbage because you know, like there's just, you can't be too picky right. over 2,400 miles. And Everything I had the first two days, I hated. I only wanted food that Chuck had. And thank God he had enough food for me, too. Um, <laughs> but that's know. one of the most common adventure race things is that your favorite food is the food in your in your teammates back. It's a yes. very, very common thing. Yeah. Okay. I was just like, oh, why did I why did I bring this? Um, we ate a lot of Pop-Tarts for breakfast and I I it'll be a while before I need to eat another Pop-Tart. Um, and yeah, I mean, there were times that it just was like, oh. You know, really, we have to eat again. But yeah, um, yeah. How far, it was. how far were you in between resupplies? Like, how, like, what was your what was your biggest distance between? In like, were you was it five days, six days, ten days between you left the town and you were on your own to the next town? It was never that long. Um, the longest that we anticipated the possibility of being between resupplies was four days. And that was when we were crossing the Great Basin. We left Rollins, Wyoming, and um, Atlantic City, Wyoming was about 130 miles away, but their their services were only open a limited amount of time. So then we might have had to continue on further. So we actually packed enough food at that point to, to go for four days because we're averaging about 60 miles a day. Um, but just to kind of pad our, just in case we wanted to make sure that we had enough to go that four days. So we carried four days worth of food and we ended up, that was our longest day. We, we did the first day, 96 miles. And so we actually made it the entire distance that we'd kind of anticipated taking three or four days for we did it in two. What so did we you carried do? food for it. How'd you do for water? Um, so we, um, that was also the longest stretch without water, but 50 miles in there was a reservoir that was slightly off route and we were going to go to that. And as it turned out, there were two girls who we'd kind of um, like played a, uh, leapfrog with and one of their moms was out there or one of their one of their sets of parents was out there doing support during that section and they had a bunch of water so rather than having to yeah so they just they just filled us up there and then the next day uh where we camped then we had about 15 miles towards um a well and so we refilled there and then we were able to refill about 30 miles later in the town so um it ended up not being a big long stretch um at all you, you, you're you're recounting all of the wells and all the towns and everything. How much pre-research did you have to do going into it? You know, we really did not do a ton of research going into it. I've had those maps um, for the Tour Divide route for probably six years, maybe seven years. And 
when I went to like look at them, it just was so overwhelming, all the information in there. And thankfully, the um, the Adventure Cycling Association app has in New Mexico, it has water sources marked, which is really your biggest, your biggest issue. And so um, we really went into it like we kind of knew what our first couple of days plan was before we started. But other than that, we didn't have research done. I mean, even even in the first couple of weeks of the route of the race route, whatever, people would say, you know, oh, like what towns are you going to? I was like, well, let me look at my app. <laughs> <laughs> whatever my purple line says. <laughs> so exactly. I'm, I'm on whatever this thing tells me to do. Exactly. Yes, it's like <laughs> It's funny you bring that up and that's very much, and I think that's a little adventure racing transference. I was in a race one time. I had a teammate who was new to adventure racing, had come out of endurance sports. And when we were leaving the TA, we were leaving at, at, at sunset. It was a multi-day race. We were leaving at sunset. And this person was kind of blown away that we had no plan except just to get to the next checkpoint. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, where are we going to sleep? Put our head down. Like, what's our strategy here? And my answer was like, our strategy is to get to the next checkpoint and then figure it out from there. And right. so I think your adventure racing experience served you well with the idea. And on top of that too, you have a base of capacity and skill. You knew you'd be okay. Once again, put the credit card thing to the side for a second. You have access to food and water. You're going to be fine. And therefore Absolutely. you may suffer and it may, it may be really miserable, but suffering and being in danger are two completely separate things. And that's what adventure racing teaches us. Right, for sure. So, so as you you you, you mentioned that the, the the two other riders that you ran into and then their their parents helped out, they gave you water. Um, I'm assuming this is a pretty well traveled route. So there were people northbound and southbound. What experiences did you have with other riders, as well as also the towns you passed through, really sort of embrace the culture of the Tour Divide? So, what was it like running into all the humanity? You know, um, it's interesting because in the first section, we we saw maybe like five other riders who were kind of bouncing back and forth with us. And that's partly because that northbound route that we were taking is a lot less traveled than people traveling, um, going southbound. Um, we saw a ton, ton, ton of riders in the Great Basin. And, you know, like racers, the experience is very different because racers are racing. And so for the most part, like they're they're moving on and they're not wanting to stop. Every once in a while, another rider would stop and we'd talk um, in the town of Pinedale. Uh, we were there for a while. And so we talked to a bunch of people who were touring. Um, and, and townspeople, people in the towns were, were very nice. Um, I, I didn't find it um, like overly accommodating, but they were always very interested in what we were doing and, and, and kind. Did you have the experience where you found yourself in a restaurant or a corner store with sitting around the table with other riders too, and you're all comparing stories along the way? We had that a few times. Yeah. We, um, we ended up in Hartzell, um, Colorado at the same time as the girls did. And so, so we talked to them too, or there were some racers from New Zealand that we ran into in Del Norte, Colorado. And so we talked to them for a while. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great feeling. The, the idea that you, you're all sharing the same sacrifice. You're all going through the same thing together and you find that camaraderie at a, at a, at a desired rest stop, right? You're, you're sitting there right. and you're eating, you're eating an entire pizza and you're, you're drinking like nine Cokes and you're like, Hey, we're good. Let's get going here. Um, how did you do for sleep? Did you, did you do campsites? Did you stop along the trail? I saw some interesting pictures. I think you might've had a bathroom in there at one point, which by the way, I can relate to, I've been there for that. Um, so, so how did that work out for you? 
So we camped, um, I think of our 43 nights, we camped 31 of them. And by camping, I mean, we slept on the ground. There were some times that we camped inside a building. Um, one of those buildings was really barely more than sleeping outside. Um, it looked a little bit like a building that had been through a Stranger Things experience. Um, it had holes in the roof. And so when it stormed that night, we could hear the water coming through into yeah. the trash cans under it. But we were <laughs> we were inside. And that um, that honestly was one of those, um, you know, real trail magic type of things, because we had ridden in the town of um, Lima, Montana on a weekend. And it's like this teeny tiny little town. So Chuck and I are real different people. Um, I like to know where I'm going to sleep. And his favorite phrase is it'll work itself out. And so... <laughs> What that usually means is that I'll work it out because I like to know the details. But this was a time that we just hadn't worked it out. And, um, you know, we're like, it'll be fine. There's nobody here. So we got to dinner in Lima and asked the waitress at the restaurant slash hotel if they had any rooms. And she said, oh, Chuck, you know, we've got a wedding in here. And so I'm not sure. So she came back and they didn't have any. So while we waited for our food, I started on the app looking at, hotels which is really like cabins um there, there wasn't a whole lot so i called the other the other hotel in town and they were also booked and then there was a town 10 miles away and this was on a 75 mile day so it would have made us ride another 10 miles and we weren't excited about that but that was the reality that we were facing and it was supposed to storm that night otherwise we could have just slept outside it wouldn't have been a big deal and um, the first place was booked and so I called another place that was listed as cyclist only camping and the man who answered was like oh this is a private residence now we don't do that and so I apologized and he's like well did you try such and such I'm like no they're booked and he tells me he's like oh yeah there's a wedding in town you you know this is like the worst time in 10 years to try and sleep here and I'm Okay, well, thanks. thanks pal. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> no kidding. That's, that's very helpful. <laughs> so I just told him goodbye and hung up. And like moments later, he called me back and he's like, hey, if you get in a bind, call me back and I'll let you into the old town hall. And I was like, man, we're in a bind. We're in a bind. Like, Guess what? We, yeah. have no, we have nowhere to sleep. And he's like, okay, well, it's not, you know, it's not much, but you can sleep here. And I was, you know, we were so grateful. So we rode another 10 miles and he had texted me that he'd unlocked the door. We could just go in and we get there and the door's locked. And so I text him, I'm okay, we're here, but the door is locked. He's like, it's not, it's not locked. It's, it's just an old lock. Just it's stuck. Just push the door. And I'm like, no, it's, it's locked. Like I know how locks work. Right. It's and this locked. is, this is closed up. <laughs> and he's like, no, just like kick it in. And so, um, like you can't see me online, but I'm almost six feet tall and I played basketball in high school and I can, you know, I can still box out. And so I just kind of like hip checked the door and busted it open and the, the the deadbolt busted off the frame of the door. It was locked, but, but we got in there for the night and um, it wasn't much, you know, but again, it stormed that night. It was a terrible storm and we were inside right. and, and we were super, super thankful. Um, the, the bathroom situation that you talked about, um, when we were in Del Norte, Colorado, uh, this is another cyclist only camping. This The city of Del Norte allows cyclists to camp for free in their city park. Now, mind you, there is an RV park like two miles away for $20 a night. But we're going to camp for free because that's that's how you do the tour divide. So we stopped in and checked in at the uh, police station like they asked you to. And they said, OK, now set up on the stage because 
the sprinklers. We don't turn off the sprinklers. And so the sprinklers don't hit the stage. <laughs> okay. So we set up and we get woken up at like 1230 in the morning by some crazy man walking through like yelling profanities. And then you hear him like talking about bikes as we're laying in our tents on the stage. And I checks over there with like his hand on the bear spray, just, you know, like, okay, this guy touches our bikes, you know, I'm going to spray him. And he wandered off. And then about one 30 in the morning, you could hear the, you could hear the sprinklers come on. Um, and then all of a sudden you hear, and Chuck goes, ah! <laughs> like this sprinkler hit him right in the face in his tent and so his tent was further out on the stage and mine was in the center and i'm i'm kind of laying there i'm like okay i'm dry Think, i'm good go. chuck good luck buddy <laughs> i think i'm okay <laughs> and then you hear oh and it's like it's not a sprinkler it's not like that gentle like gentle rain that you send your kids through it's like a fire truck just sprayed its hose into our tents and so we would like jump out of our tents and we like run down the stairs and he is like the most calm good-natured person in the world like i'm kind of the more high-strung one and he as we're running to the bathroom around the corner he's like this is the worst night in the world <laughs> i like the fact that the town is like you're, you're more than welcome to stay like we're, we're glad you're here welcome to our town you can sleep here <laughs> by the way we don't turn the sprinklers off like but we're right. glad you're here we're really we're, right. we're here to work with you and you're safe on the stage but you're not. So yeah, like we had to, we're like standing, we're like peeking around the corner of the bathroom. And then we'd run up to the stage and grab our sleeping bags out of, out of the tent. And then the sprinkler would come through again. Then we'd run up to the stage and we'd grab our tent. We, we ran our tents down. So we did sleep on the bathroom floor. I feel like I like I leveled up in the bike packing world. Um, that's one of those things you have to do along with sleeping in a post office. And um, so the next day I called the city of Del Norte and they didn't answer, but I just left a message thanking them for their hospitality and letting them know to stop telling people to sleep on the stage because <laughs> the sprinklers definitely hit the stage. Like, thanks guys. Like we're good. Okay, good. Yeah. 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 And, and so it's, it sounded, so what was your, clearly you had tents with you, you had pads with you, all of it on the bike. Did you go with a backpack or was everything, nothing on your back, right? It was, everything was on the bike. Right. Nothing on my back. The only time we had anything on our back was that stretch through the Great Basin where we had extra food. Um, and when we carried four days worth of food, we carried that. We had little collapsible backpacks that were mm -hmm. like collapsed to about the size of your fist. And so sure. we put extra food and water in those just for that stretch. But for the most part, yep, everything else rode on our bike. Clearly, logistically speaking, you nailed it, right? You knew the direction you had to go. You had the purple line. You had your, you had your, your all, everything you've practiced kind of came together. You mentioned before when you were eight miles from the Canadian border it began to feel real because once again, adventure racing lived to the next checkpoint, lived to the next town. This was almost a decade in the making for you. You had sacrificed to get there. You sacrificed over the long term and over the short term. Walk us through the final sections, the final stages when it got real. You passed through the Canadian border. You were closing in on Alberta. Like, how did you, were you even processing it then? Or did, did it occur to you later on when you got on the other side of it? I, I think that for both of us, the first, the first biggest like realization was that time when we were so close to the border and we're like, oh my gosh, like, yes, we're actually going to do this. And then that section through Canada was, I mean, really jaw droppingly beautiful. I can't imagine 
finishing the route a different way because every it's like every turn you made just about was was phenomenal and so gorgeous and and then we kept hearing things about bears and and grizzly bear encounters and so you know you had this this double-edged sword of oh my gosh it's so beautiful and you know I very much wanted to see a grizzly bear and I very much did not want a grizzly bear to see me (laughs) you know it was um so so we had some sketchy sections there where you know we had we had crossed paths with riders who were like I saw three grizzly bears today and a grizzly bear chased me and so anything that looked at all like closed in you know we're like loudly singing a hundred bottles of beer on the wall um but you know um that last day was really just really special the second last day was actually really beautiful it was it was challenging and hard we had camped in elkford and elkford montana no elkford british columbia and for the first time had this huge group of riders around us, most of them who were going southbound. And, you know, it was just such a cool um, spectrum of riders. Like there were two men who were traveling together and there was a solo rider and there was a family who was just doing, doing a section. And then there was a couple who lived somewhere up North of where we were. And we're just kind of appalled that we planned to make it from Elkford to, um, from Elkford to Banff in two days, you know, it was, it was only like a hundred miles is like, it wasn't a huge distance. And, you know, we were like, boy, you know, we've ridden 2,300 miles. Like, I think we can do this, but it really did kind of put some doubt in both of us. I think we were a little intimidated by the next day. And then, you know, we did it fine, but the first day was leaving Elkford was so beautiful the whole way and, and isolated, um, amazing blue, blue lakes and beautiful terrain. And, you know, it was climbing, but it was rideable for the most part. Um, and then we, we camped that night and we saw, finally saw grizzly bear leaving Peter Loughborough, um, provincial park the next morning. So this was our very last day on the divide that we saw a grizzly bear. And then we got onto this like the only way you can describe it is a gravel super highway. And it was everything that our previous wonderful day had not been, you know, it was this wide road and it just felt like maybe the, um, maybe the national sport of Canada was dusting cyclists. And it was like, you know, like 30 miles of frustration and irritation and choking on dust. And then we turned onto this single track and then we were, you know, back by ourselves again. And it was beautiful and steep and climby. And, you know, we were just pushed and pushed and pushed to get to the end. And I think Chuck was particularly excited to get to the end. You know, he's retired. And so like he was going back to his retired life. And for me, um, you know, I was real excited to see my family and I love my job, but I, it's, it's hard, you know, I mean, it, you work in education, it's really difficult. And it's interesting because, um, um, you talked to one of the 361 guys, one of the Lamasters. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I can remember when he was talking to you, he was talking about how like his adventure racing and bikepacking experiences um, have have kind of taught him that he could do anything, you know, and that feeds like his day-to-day life. And for me, I feel like it's almost the opposite. Like my day-to-day life um, most years is so challenging at work that no matter what I'm going through, 
on the bike or an adventure race, I'm really thankful that that's what I'm going through and not, you know, not kind of struggling with the challenges at work. So I think for me, those feelings coming to the end were a lot more mixed than for Chuck, you know, like I I was happy to see my family and I was happy that I was going to know where my next drink of water was going to come from and that I knew where I'd be sleeping the next night and that I wasn't going to be caught out on a storm. But, you know, there's a lot to be said for, riding your bike all day long and you have no responsibilities other than feeding yourself and watering yourself and, and sleeping where you find a spot to sleep. So, um, it was, it was really wonderful, but it was, you know, it was also kind of a mixed blessing to finish. Yeah. There's so much there, right? Right. Kate, there's the idea that the first things first, the, when you're, when you're caught up in a grand adventure like this, there is the simplicity of my job is to eat, sleep and ride. And that's all that really matters, right? And and if for people who have complex jobs like you do, there's a certain level of of, of I'm going to say mental relaxation, which is not really the best term to use because it's mentally hard to do that kind of riding. But you put everything else off to the side, right? So you, you touch on that. And I think it's really interesting when you talk about the idea that you have a job that is appropriately stressful, right? It's okay for a job to be stressful. That's why they, they pay you to be there. But you're, it's not like your life is easy, so you go do something hard. Your life isn't easy, but you still go and do something hard because it's a different kind of challenging, a different kind of hard. Uh, and I think you really touch on a lot of what a lot of racers go through, why they do this, like what it is there. And, and to your point, having the idea of the mixed emotions, like like this has been fantastic. I have these these thousands of miles behind me. I've earned the right to be a, to, to say I was a, I was a tour divide finisher. And then on top of that, you then have a re-entry into the world and seeing your family, things like that. And so you're, you're really, you're spot on and catching so much of it. Did you find now that you're roughly 45 days after it, right? And I know that you've, you've had a chance to process it and talk about it. The experience that you had versus the experience that you thought you were going to have, how much did that, how big of a Venn diagram, how much does that overlap? That's a good question. Um, you know, honestly, I, I think they were pretty similar. You know, I didn't I didn't have any idea that um, I was going to be strong and go out there and, and destroy these mountains. Um, but I also felt very confident other than those two days in my ability to do it. And then, and, you know, my, my team's ability to do it. So I would say overall, um, the Venn diagram is real close to a circle. And, That's great. and, you know, what's interesting too, um, I'm sure you've experienced this, you know, that post-race depression where you finish some immense challenge yep. or, or exciting thing that you've been planning for forever. And, um, you know, if you don't have something that you're working towards, you know, it's, it's really kind of a difficult experience. And, and I anticipated that. And I really, um, I really haven't felt that. And I don't have any major thing on the horizons for me. Um, and I, I wouldn't, you know, it's not that I'm like, oh, I did that. And I never want to do anything like that again. You know, we're kind of actively talking about, well, what adventure do we want to have next year? Um, but I don't feel the the depression that I expected to feel. You know, I, I feel a real exciting sense of accomplishment and pride. And um, I had very much the experience, you know, would I have liked to be stronger and, and faster? Sure. But I wasn't. And I'm real content with how I was. If there was somebody sitting home right now listening to this and you had to tick off the, 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 the top three things that they should think about and work on to do this, what would you recommend to them? Logistics, logistics, logistics. Um, and if you don't know how to fix your own bike, take along somebody who does. 
Um, but yeah, I, I really feel like logistics are the biggest thing. Like if you can wrap your head around um, that, you can be successful in this. You know, anybody for the most part, you know, can ride their bike, whether it's faster or slower. Um, but where it can fall apart is when you're, you know, leaving yourself caught out with no water, where you're leaving yourself caught out with no food, where you don't have a place to stay overnight um, or a place to sleep. And, you know, I, I came through that through some, some difficult experience, you know, my first high country race experience. Um, you know, I, I had a very, it was a great experience, but, you know, I had all those experiences of like, okay, I'm just going to ride as far as I can ride today. And then you get to the end of the day and the campgrounds closed. And I, I'm still not that person who's comfortable curling up in a ditch. You know, maybe some, maybe someday that'll be me, but it's not yet. Um, you know, and so I, I ended up in a town with one sketchy hotel room and the only open food store was a liquor store where all I could buy was beef jerky, you know? Um, no, that's not even true. It was Fritos, which did not fuel me well for the next day, you know? And so kind of, I, I had had that experience of screwing up repeatedly, you know, I'd like have a bad day because I had messed up and then kind of get things back together and have a good day. And then once again, you know, kind of like riding myself out of range of a place to stay or, or riding myself, um, riding myself down without having enough fuel. And so um, all those experiences I've had in the past, past really fed this experience and, and, you know, I learned from it and, I felt like for the most part, we really nailed the logistics and, you know, even in that stranger things disaster of a community center that we slept in, you know, we would have, we would have found a place, you know, we would have been okay. And, and, you know, that's one of the comforts too, of doing this with somebody else is that if I'm sleeping in a ditch, at least there'll be somebody next to me in the ditch. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Dark Zone and Adventure Racing Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to your streaming platform of choice and leave a rating and a review. Best way to spread the word about the Dark Zone. Once again, thanks for being here and have a great off season.